Good morning, everyone. Uh, here we are on another Lord's Day when we're not able to be uh, together, but I trust all of you are uh, well and are growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, as a reminder, today at 4.30, we've got our weekly time of prayer together as a church, uh, followed by a discussion of the uh, uh, this week's lesson in the series, Who is the Holy Spirit? I hope you can join us uh, today at 4.30. Um, as we begin uh, this morning, uh, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Please join me. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have brought us to another day. Your grace has sustained us. Your grace is um, going to lead us home. Father, I pray that as we spend time in your word today, that you would be pleased to change us more and more into the image of Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Father, may your word be our rule, your Holy Spirit be our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Here we are at week number six in our series, Our Only Comfort, uh, looking at uh, the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism, which asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? That is, what is your only security? What is your secure foundation that holds you, that anchors you in the midst of any and all circumstances, circumstances in both life and in death. This is, as we've been saying, um, the most important question that's being asked and answered in one way or another these days. Now, in organizing and summarizing the teaching of God's Word, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, this first question and answer provides a clear answer to that question in, that is both concise and comprehensive. Let's um, listen to it uh, once again. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Now this is an answer that has to be taken personally. It's, it's, it's what is my only comfort, but it's also a, a question and an answer that we need to take corporately. What is our only comfort as a church in life and in death? This answer can be summarized in nine words. What is your only comfort? I belong to Jesus. But of course, more needs to be said, and in the answer is said. The answer gives us a few more words about Jesus. He is my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Here we see aspects of the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is faithful. He cannot change. He will not change. He saves fully and finally. We see in the answer what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus continues to do for us. What has he already done? He has fully paid for all of our sins. What has, he, what has he done? He has set us free from the tyranny of the devil. 
And what does Jesus continue to do? He also watches over me. As we saw last week, he is, we are watched over personally. Now, while we have every reason to be confident and assured, we still, even today, may have a few questions. Does God know about my present circumstances? Does he care? Can God finish what he has started? Can God protect what he has purchased? And the answer that is given, as we saw last week, is yes, absolutely, most certainly. And we looked at last week um, some scriptures that dealt with the hairs on our head, the sparrows in the sky in the market, and sheep in the pasture to answer that question. But the answer goes on to make a statement. After we read, he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. We read these words, in fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Here again is another statement of God's sovereignty, his rule, his providence, his ruling over all his creation. It might seem to be an oh, by the way statement. Um, sometimes what often goes without saying should be said, and here in the catechism, it is said. And as we hear these words, these words from the answer that all things must work together for my salvation, it's almost as if a direct line is drawn to one verse in the Bible in particular. Romans 8.28. Now after John 3.16, this may be the most well-known, the most well-loved verse for the believer. It's an anchor for the believer. It's a, it's a home base where you can run back to time and time and time again. Now as we will see, you've got to take this verse in context, in the context of the verses surrounding it, in the whole chapter of Romans 8, in Romans itself, in the New Testament, and the entire Bible. Join with me now as I read Romans 8, beginning in verse 26, going through verse 32. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, there's a danger with Romans chapter 8, verse 23. 
The danger is that it can be ripped out of context. It can be put into a blessing box of sorts where you just reach in and grab it. But the context here is suffering, the difficulty of life, the fallenness of life, the trouble in life where things don't work well. It's the context of suffering. In fact, one commentator says that this verse is is likened to a pillow on on which to rest our weary head. Indeed, there's a danger, but there's also a great encouragement. And we will see that as we, as we go. Notice how verse 28 starts. And we know. And we know. Here is a confession of faith in the middle of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Paul could have just started for those who love God. But he put before that, and we know. Now earlier, in verse 26, for we do not know how to pray, Paul writes. But here he says, we know. It's put here for our comfort, for our assurance, for our confidence. Now as we begin, we need to think a little bit first about the boundaries of this verse. One boundary is this. This is for those who love God. Now, it's rare for Paul to say this. Often, Paul speaks of God's love for us. But here, interestingly, he says our love for God, for those who love God. Now, of course, in 1 John 4, we we read that we love because God first loved us. So one boundary, one marker here in our text is that this applies to those who love God. And the other boundary is this. It applies for those who are called according to his purpose, his eternal purpose. And Paul doesn't leave us hanging. He tells us right after that it's conformity to the image of Jesus Christ, conformity to the Son, God's eternal purpose of rescuing his people and remaking them in the image of of his son. Now, with these boundaries in mind, let's grow in our understanding and appreciation of the catechism statement. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. By focusing our attention on a few words in Romans 8:28, all things work together for good. Here we see three things in our text. First, all things All things means all things. Now, in the context of of, um, Romans 8, if you got your Bible, look down to verse 35. What are the all things? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Now, to be sure, all things includes the good and the bad, the easy and the difficult, the short and the long, the big and the small, the the expected, the unexpected. But the context brings together this idea that all things are the difficult and the hard. Now, we need to remind ourselves that there is teaching that is false and bad and there is teaching that is true and good. 
all things happen to Christians. That is, terrible things happen to people who love God, to people who have been called according to his purpose. Now, many Christians explicitly teach, and and most of us implicitly believe that if we love God, if we serve God, nothing bad will happen to us. It's absolutely important to recognize this. It's Jesus's warning and Jesus's encouragement that he writes, that he says to his followers, in this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have difficulty. In other words, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. See, I think it's it's because of the shock and the surprise that encouragement um, comes in and despondency and despair settle in. It's because we're shocked and surprised. And yet Paul wants to make it clear, all things includes the tribulation and the trial and the persecution and the sorrow and the suffering. But what is it about all things? Well, Paul goes on to say that they work together. It's not things working together on their own, but it's God working things together. When things work together for good in your life, it's because of God at work. Now, in the context of Romans 8, we we read about things falling apart. We read about uh, the creation subject to decay. Everything falls apart. Things don't come together on their own. Um, It's a sentimental idea that all of us believe at times that things ought to go right. Things just do go right. It's normal for things to go right. You know, in the modern West, if, if things go wrong, what's our response? You sue, right? Somebody did something wrong and they need to pay. But I think we need to step back and, and realize that, that if anything goes well, it's a miracle of grace. If there's good health, it's because of God. If, there, if, there, if we have friends that love us, it's because of God. Paul is not saying that things just work together on their own for good, work together for our good. No, he is saying that it is God who is working all things together. You know, it might be helpful if you're familiar with an old watch. You uh, take off the back of an old watch and you see all these gears small gears, large gears. You see some going in one direction and others going in another direction. And yet, they are all working together for good to keep an accurate time. Now, a watch, you open up the back of a watch and you see that, but but here Paul may be liking it also to the underside of a quilt, the underside of a tapestry, that God is working, and right now all we see is the underside. We don't see the pattern. We don't see the beauty. We don't see um, what is taking place on the other side. It's just a bunch of strings hanging down, and no design, no pattern, and yet there is another side that one day Scripture assures us 
we will see. So Paul says, all things work together, but for what purpose? He says it clearly, for good. All things work together for good. Now we need to look first what the verse does not promise and what the verse does not say. It is not a promise for better circumstances. Nowhere do we see there that there is the guarantee of circumstances being better, being changed. And it does not say that bad things are actually good things. It does not say that evil things are are good. It acknowledges the bad, but promises that God is working even the bad for good. Now, there are several biblical examples. Uh, We don't have time for many, but just a few. Uh, In our Old Testament reading, there was Joseph who said this before his brothers in Egypt, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, Joseph's brothers wanted, they sold him off to slavery. They wouldn't have cared if he had died. And yet God preserved him, preserved him from slavery, from being in prison, raised him up to place him in a position to save many lives. And Joseph was changed through that to recognize that what God, what his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. God was working everything in Joseph's life for good, even though that meant false accusation, that meant betrayal and abandonment, all things for good. Most of us are familiar with the story of Job. We get the the seats to see the big picture of Job, but Job didn't. Job saw the loss of his property, the loss of his family, even the loss of his own health. And toward the end of the book, Job says this, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. All of that was working together so that Job could, by faith, see the Lord, to see the Lord working out everything for his ends and purposes. At the beginning of his letter to the church in Philippi, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Well, what happened to Paul? Where was he writing this letter from? Paul was in jail. He was in prison. And yet he was able to recognize that what what was not good was turning out to be a blessing for the church. I want us to think about another time in Scripture. Jesus was at Lazarus' tomb. Jesus was angry. Jesus wept. Now there is a sentimental view of suffering that they are just blessings in disguise or there's a silver lining to the cloud, but no. Upon the death of Lazarus, upon his burial, Jesus 
was angry. Why was Jesus angry? He was angry at death. He was angry at, as it were, the ultimate evil, the the end of life, the curse of sin. He was angry. Jesus hates death. Now, in addition to this one instance of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, before Lazarus was raised from the dead, there's just the entire biblical record of the work of Jesus. And and, and Jesus, we see, hates death so much that he was willing to come into the world and experience all things, things such as loneliness and alienation and pain and suffering. Why? Why would Jesus endure all things? He would do it, my friends, so that he could eventually destroy death without death destroying us. He could take the curse of the wrath of God so that we would not take the curse. He would forfeit the blessing so that we could inherit the blessing. Romans 8.28 is summarized well in these words from John Newton, uh, the former slave trader, the, the pastor, the author of hymns such as Amazing Grace. Newton said this, everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Did you hear that? Everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. There are things in our life that may be good in the short run, but in the long run, they would be terrible. Why? Why would something that seems good now be terrible in the long run? It's because it takes us away from dependence upon the Lord. It takes our eyes off of the Lord as the provider for us, as the protector for us. It, some good things may reinforce our delusion that we're in control. There may be things that are good in the partial, but not in the whole. And so what can we say in view of Romans 8.28 that, that God brings, as it were, bad things into your life and my life in the short run to cure us of the things that can destroy us in the long run. We're right now in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. And at first glance, there, can't, there doesn't seem to be a lot of good in it. But This verse covers this pandemic. This verse covers job loss. This verse covers disappointment and uncertainty and confusion. This verse covers it all. You see, if anything, it's turning our eyes to the Lord, to the one who has an eternal plan for the long haul, and for the whole, not just the partial. You see, in Romans 28, we read of for good, but in the Heidelberg Catechism, we read for my salvation. My friends, it's the same 
thing. God works all things for good. All things must work together for our salvation because, my friends, our salvation is our ultimate good to be freed from the penalty of sin, to be forgiven, that is ultimate good for us. You see, God doesn't promise us better circumstances, but he promises us a better life, a new life. And Romans 8 will continue to speak of our calling leading to our glorification, that it's, it's as good as done. Because when we understand what is to come, and what is to come is our ultimate good apart from sin and suffering and death, when we see that, when we live in light of that, then we can handle anything here and now. As I was thinking about Romans 8.28, um, I was thinking about my own cynicism, my own doubt, my own skepticism. I mean, really? All things? Because right now, I'm not seeing all things work together for good. And yet, my cynicism runs smack into a divine conspiracy. Yes, that's right, a divine conspiracy of God behind the scenes, invisible to our eyes, but seen with the eyes of faith, is working together. The good, the bad, the ugly, the, the, the immediate suffering and difficulty. And again, it's not just that every cloud has a silver lining or it's a blessing in disguise. No, my friends, the difficulty is real. The suffering is real. But our cynicism meets the divine conspiracy of God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working all things together for the good of a person who loves him of a person who has been called according to his purpose. You know, we've been saying that um, the simple way to answer what is my only comfort is to say I belong to Jesus, but I think there's more to it than that. It's I'm becoming like Jesus. Because if Jesus did say, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We are becoming more and more like the one we follow. We're becoming more like the one we love. See, God is committed to finishing the work that he has become begun in us. And what is that work? That you and I become more like Jesus. Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. That's the supreme example. There was joy in the midst of very difficult circumstances for Jesus. He had his eye on the prize. He had his eye on the eternal. You see, there is a God-produced joy and confidence in the life of a Christian that the deepest trouble cannot extinguish and that can overcome the greatest grief. 
My friends, do you have that joy and confidence? If you don't have it, do you want it? We all want, I think, the circumstances to change. But more than that, do we want the joy? Do we want the confidence that cannot be produced in us, by us, but it only comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ? You know, the catechism starts off by saying, in fact, all things. In fact, without a doubt, for sure, all things must work together for my salvation. All things for the believer does do work together for our salvation, for us becoming more and more like our Savior. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you hear our prayer when we say, I believe, help my unbelief. Father, we both believe and don't believe that all things work together for our good. We believe and don't believe all things must work together for my salvation. Oh, Father, help us to put our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for us and for our salvation indeed endured the cross. Help us, Father, to grow in our love for you, our trust in you, our confidence in you knowing that you are good and that you are working good in our life. We pray this in the name of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.